Talking Con, a cup of tea with an Englishman in San Diego. Season 7, Episode 48. Mike Avelia and Russ Burlingame. touched on I mean we touched on um, some new mutant stuff touched on some big numbers stuff but it was it was all about conventions about his interactions with that it was a good show but um, I did get a whole bunch of new people joining in on that and it was a like a lot of people going ah Englishman ah you yeah, yeah. so it's it was a weird one but good it was good um, everybody, if you're watching this now, you've got a notification. We've got already a couple of people jumping in on the comments. Thank you very much indeed. Uh, of course, uh, thank you very much indeed to our Patreon supporters as well. Uh, you're able to keep the lights on, uh, basically, at what we do. So please do consider heading over there and just throwing a couple of uh, uh, pennies into the pot. It really does help. Um, Andrew English is saying hello. Or hello all from London. I'm certain if it's uh, absolutely throwing it down here in Yorkshire, it's... Uh, not so well down uh, London way. Into the Blue Mister, hello from Windy Wales. I think I've already seen several houses, an old lady on a bicycle, a cow, some chickens and a witch on a broomstick blow past my window. Yeah, I, I don't doubt that at all. Uh, Andrew English uh, says hello. Aaron Neighbours, hola from San Diego. Hello, Aaron. Um, we've got Michael P. Good morning from Colorado as well. A whole bunch of people joining us. Please do jump in on the comments, anything you want to talk about today. But heaven knows we've got ourselves... A pretty full docket. Um, we've got a lot we can kind of get into today. Um, I'm going to try and keep this a very frank discussion as well, uh, which means um, if you, uh, if anybody has any um, contributions to the conversation, any thoughts that you have about what we're talking about, please do uh, jump in and we'll uh, we'll do what we can to uh, to cover it today. We'll dive straight in. Hi, my name's Leonard Sultana. This is Talking Con, a cup of tea with an Englishman in San Diego. Um, uh, each and every week, uh, every Wednesday and Sunday, we talk about Comic-Cons, con culture, and the stuff and nonsense that you get to enjoy at such shows. Uh, we get to talk to some amazing people, which is why I have got two people um, who we had on exactly a month ago. It doesn't feel like a month. It feels like a couple of decades, um, to be fair. Um, the world has changed again. Um, and I said when the guys were on um, that I wasn't going to try and insist or ask if we can get them on on the last Sunday of every month, but I wouldn't complain if we did, because these two are just amazing. Uh, it's great to have back uh, Russ Burlingame and, of course, Mike Avelia. Hello there, chaps. How the devil are you? Hey, guys. Doing great. How are you? Uh, ah, fine, thank you. Uh, I mean, yeah. <laughs> it <Yeah>. feels like <laughs> an eternity since we, we last spoke, but it really wasn't that long ago. Um, I mean, if we can just check in with you and ask uh, where you are in terms of the, the, the local area and what your what uh, lockdowns looking like and uh, how things are currently progressing in your neck of the woods, uh, Russ, where where can we find you at the moment? Well, I'm in Syracuse. I'm in the upstate New York, central New York. Uh, which actually, if you remember, about three weeks ago on Twitter, central New York was trending because we had relaxed some of the restrictions, and everybody collectively in the world was like, "What the hell is central New York?" Uh, it's it's a region that's uh, essentially exactly what it sounds like. It's the middle of the state, but since the state is very big and most people think of it as just the city, uh, it means nothing to anyone. Uh, anyway, uh, we 
it's the combination of having a pretty red county and having living kind of remotely enough that there's not a ton of cases that have been here. And so we had uh, been pretty aggressively uh, opening up. We, I personally had not, I mean, I have the, the privilege of being able to work from home all the time. And uh, as I mentioned last time, we have my father-in-law lives, lives here and uh, has a, uh, he's a high risk. So I've been mostly just doing exactly what I was doing last time we talked, although it's a lot easier for me to like send out and get stuff in the neighborhood. Fair enough. Um, I mean, yeah, I think it's very similar to here in that we're starting to re um, ease restrictions, even if uh, those of us with some kind of common sense are wondering yeah. why we're doing things the way we're doing. Um, so I suspect New York is very similar in, in that regard, in, in that uh, part of the world, um, especially when you look at the numbers and you, you see how uh, things are kind of progressing. Uh, Mike, yourself, um, where can we find you and how's things with you at the moment? I'm, st I'm still in Miami, as I like to call it, the smart part of, of Florida. So uh, <laughs> myself and, and my family and a lot of our friends have been following you know, the, the lockdown protocols since the beginning. Things have gotten a little bit more relaxed, so you're seeing some people uh, going out more. Um, you know, we've had some friends over in our backyard area. We're lucky enough we have a, a pool area, so we can have some folks over and stay six, eight feet apart and have a, a cocktail or two while we, you know, we talk with some friends. But uh, in terms of restaurants and things like that, not really quite sure about that. Um, obviously, other parts of Florida further north, um, really like Orlando and above, they're, they're experiencing problems as we, we've had back-to-back -back days of record-breaking uh, COVID-19 cases being reported. Um, you know, and right now, I think, I think uh, the governor rolled back uh, some of the restrictions. I think, he, I, I think I, um, bars are, are not allowed to sell alcohol anymore. They're still allowed to stay open and sell food. Okay. I'm not really sure how that works. But um, I think we're kind of caught in a... In, in, in something that we all kind of expected would happen, which is once the lockdown ended and then people kind of really rushed to get back to normal, uh, the second wave hit and now people are like, wait, what? The second wave yeah. is here? Wait, what, what, what do we do? Because nobody wants to go back to being locked down in their house all the time, even though that's really the only way you can prevent it. And then you have all the, the nonsense with people fighting the, you know, wearing the masks and everything. And it's like, you know, I don't like wearing the mask either. But if I got to go run an errand to Home Depot, I wear the mask. Is it comfortable? Not particularly. But I'm not only protecting other people; it's just a responsible thing to do. You know? Damn right. Uh, so, I mean, so you I, wear it. That's I it. mean, the the, the the footage you see of the uh, the council chambers with people oh. irrationally screaming at uh, councillors and uh, yeah. saying that it's a a, a uh, an assault on their civil liberties, and uh, they can't breathe. And it's, it's, uh, it's, everyone... it's, 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 it's I'll say this though: the, the errands I usually run are are the Home Depot to pick up things for any project we got to do. I'm not as handy as Russ is, who who can build shelves and cabinets with his bare hands. But when I need to change the light bulb or or, or or replace a few loose screws somewhere, I go to Home Depot. Most of the people at my local Home Depot are wearing the masks, Fair so enough. I'm happy to see that. Yeah, Sorry about that. I was just, I was I was agreeing, but I was gonna say that when I went to Lowe's a couple of weeks ago, the only person not wearing a mask was uh, the assistant manager who was also like 
hands on an employee. I'm just like, dude, what is wrong with you? <laughs> oh God. <laughs> well, that's yeah. Nice uh, I mean, like I say, I mean, there was the, the 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 shouts at the council members, but also the 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 groups of people that are marshalling to protest wearing the masks. At which point, I saw a video today with the uh, the New York uh, nurse that actually went through a five minute procedure. He sort of like had the full um, uh, sensors on him to show oxygen in his blood and he went through everything and showing that no, the mask, it's uh, uncomfortable, yes, but it doesn't send CO2 back into your body or whatever. And uh, the fact that someone's had to take their time (laughs) out of their day to kind of explain this stuff. And I think one or two people who are watching now have been seeing on my personal Facebook, I've been having my own idiot convention uh kind of uh showing up and it's just uh michael p indeed uh mike leonard and uh russ you can't fight stupid Wait, listen I, I i hear you but i'm gonna try my best that's what i see that's what i say um right so like i say we've got a whole bunch of stuff that we can kind of dive into it's been a, a month and a half um since we last spoke and i think we'll start with kind of where we were um a month ago in that we were talking about um DC and we were talking about uh, and the, the, the new decisions or the decisions uh, that were being made and what we could be seeing in terms of retailers and how people were going to be getting comics out into uh, the wider world. After we spoke, um, we had DC deciding that they were going to go out on their own and strive out with um, uh, two uh, distributors, uh, certainly for North America and then for the wider world. And as far as I'm aware, if you can correct me, please, have they changed their release date? It's not the Wednesday anymore, it's the Tuesday. That's, is, that, is that right? That is correct. Yeah, that's right. Okay, so I'm not, I'm not dreaming this. I'm not, oh, it's not some strange topsy-turvy world that I, I'm now currently in. Uh, I mean... It's, that's why well, Marvel had the... Uh, I don't know if you saw this. Marvel is doing like a series of variant covers that's just like big block text bragging that they come out on Wednesdays. Yeah. Although I have seen some artists and creators going, well, that's one way of not paying any creators and artists to do variant covers. It's also kind of petty. I mean, look, logistically, the Tuesday release date is problematic for some stores, not all stores. I know my local comic shop here in Miami closes on Tuesday to prepare for a new comic book Wednesday, but they're a small... They're a small store with basically two employees and has been around for, you know, 40 years. Um, I don't think Midtown Comics ever closes um, for it, but they're a much bigger operation in New York City. Um, Russ, I don't know about your local shop. Um, I, I don't care what day. To be honest, I don't really hit my shop on Wednesdays because I've, I've got things to do and I just can't ever get to it. And, you know, half the comics I read are, are digital. And then I go to the shop. Truth be told, I could avoid going to a comic book shop if I didn't want to support them. So I go to pick up one or two new books to to help them out. And then I pick up occasional back issues for upcoming research, the projects I'm doing and whatnot. I don't, people make a big deal about it. If it impacts the stores, then it concerns me. But I personally couldn't care less if new comic book day is Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, or Friday. Yeah, I, for, sorry. Go on. No, go Uh, ahead. I've seen a lot of people who are upset because DC is essentially rocking the boat at a time when it's not good to do so because people feel like they're already unsafe. And I can certainly understand that. 
But I think from DC's perspective, they had to make these changes uh, during the state of emergency because Diamond wasn't functioning. And now it's like, look, we've, we've known for years that Diamond having a functional, uh, a functional monopoly is not good for comics. And so whether or not you're happy with DC doing it or with the timing of DC doing it, I think that this is something that DC has probably had in the back of their head, like, we need to deal with this at some point. Yeah. And once they already had their hooks in, it's just like, well, let's try it. Exactly. Why not do it now? Yeah. You know, change never comes at the moment that everybody wants change to, to, yeah. to come. So why not pull the pin and do it now? Uh, is it ideal timing? Probably not. But when would it be ideal? Yeah. When, when would it be ideal? I, I actually think it was kind of a, a, a ballsy move to do it now. And, and no matter what, a monopoly on this, most people who know the business of comics will tell you that it's not a good thing that Diamond's had. Now, there is some stability there, sure. Yeah. And there's going to be some short-term chaos. And if mistakes are made in terms of the partners that they, that they choose and whatnot. And I, I already know that some stores are complaining that now they have to cut two checks, which means they're spending more money pay two different distributors. So, so I get all pay, that. The, pay, the payment system's a bit awkward as right. well. Which, yeah. Forget the logistics, but also it's just going to cost them more because when you're paying two different vendors, yeah. it, 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 the shipping costs go up and there's such razor-thin margins in comics anyway for for comic shops that it's problematic. So I understand it, and I'm certainly, I don't want to be insensitive to that. No, absolutely. But I think if, if the right choices are made and, and, and the mistakes that, that are going to be obvious right here at the beginning are addressed and corrected, hopefully, I think ultimately it'll be a good thing because go back, if you would have asked people a year ago, hey, is it a good thing that Diamond has the monopoly on comic distribution? Everyone would say no. Yeah. That's never a good thing. Strangely enough, industry. Other, other than the retailers, because, uh, I mean, I started out with exactly the same um, uh, philosophy. I felt that, uh, yeah, monopoly is not good. I like the idea of having different choices for business. It, it allows people to be competitive. But then you spoke to every retailer going, going and they just went, yeah, but it was really easy. You had one yeah. list, it was bang, 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 and away we went. And it, it, we got one uh, set of boxes and we, we were fine and we were happy. And Because they've been trained <laughs> to follow a certain process. This is it, absolutely. I'll, I'll say also, uh, there were some retailers and especially some of the mid-sized retailers who already have grievances with these really big retailers. Uh, there are some retailers who uh, are really just upset with it because the new distribution houses are owned by Midtown and DCBS. Yeah. And if it were, if you were going to Ingram or something, uh, they wouldn't be as upset. Yeah. Uh, I think the other thing as well that um, really uh, got people thinking is the fact that um, you've also got some uh, heavy attacks uh, that will happen when it comes to certainly getting books to, say, for example, Canada. Um, outside of North America, basically. So it's going to be more expensive to buy your books, uh, certainly the, the single issues, uh, when it comes to um, in the in the bricks and mortar stores. And um, also just the fact that, by all accounts, um, for all of Diamond's uh, faults, pros and cons, um, you, they answered the phone call when you rang them. And apparently they answered their emails when you needed support. Mm -hmm. The new guys... Or the, this, the companies that um, uh, DC have got aligned themselves with, not so much. So it's very much um, an interest. I mean, obviously, it's something that's going to play out. We are still seeing stores that are reopening. We are we are not at full capacity yet. So uh, it's going to be interesting to see how uh, that's going to uh, develop. But I wanted to bring it up because um, it just kind of demonstrates that the last month 
so much has happened. It's just uh, just been insane. I mean, even last month, um, we were. I can't. I can't quite remember where we were in terms of um, uh, the the protests on the streets. Where were we? I, I can. Can you remember? They had, had not started yet. They I had not started. We talked last. No. So that I mean, that's just uh, brought a whole instability to um, society, and it's asked important questions, um, and it's just really kind of um, it's rocking. So many elements of our uh, culture and uh, society to uh, to its core, um, but um, off the back of that particular uh, discussion, uh, we might as well we'll dive into this particular uh, conversation because um, certainly when we talk about speed of events, nothing has happened uh, as fast as I can think of than this week with comics with its own uh, kind of Me Too movement uh, with uh, a number of uh, revelations. Which has sure. led to um, the uh, the dismissal, no, the um, the stepping down of Charles Brownstein at the Comic Book Legal Defence Fund. Um, but it's also led into a whole bunch of other uh, revelations this week. Um, two weeks ago, I had the um, honour of hosting the Tripwire Awards, and on that awards, we had um, a, a role of honour given out to Mike Mignola. Um, Mike has been uh, a, a big part of the career of Scott Alley, and that was a whole other um, set of revelations which has come out this week in terms of Dark Horse. Um, we'll start with the uh, CBLDF first. Um, guys, what was your take when that happened? Because it started oh. first with the... Br I think the thing that's got my angst up and my, my goat about all of this is the fact that this is not a new story. This is no, 15 years. This is 15 years of sustained abuse, and it's not one person; it's many. Why has this been something that has been allowed to fester under the rug? For this that's what that's what a lot of people in the industry, including some really big name creators, uh, have been wondering, and that's why you saw, you know, Brian Bendis, for example, a guy who who is obviously a, a powerful voice in comics, and also just a guy who loves the art form, right? And he came flat out. He was one of the first voices once everything started with the Cameron Stewart allegations. And then people came around to bringing up Charles Brownstein. He was like, this is why I don't work with the CBLDF. And Brian does a ton of work with various groups to help comics. And everyone who knows him knows he wants to help uh, the comics industry in any way he can. But he specifically didn't work with the CBLDF because of the guy in charge. And then other creators like Charles Tynan IV. Waited and others, and I'm like, wait. So, this has been going on for years and years. And notable creators, not just indie guys who, who have a very small niche audience, but really big name, popular creators, don't do anything with your organization, and you don't seem to to want to investigate why and maybe take a look inside and say, we've got a problem here with yeah. this guy. And at the top, it, it literally the, the the trouble was at the top. And it was mind-boggling to me that it took as long as it did. For them to to push him out, I mean, yeah, he stepped down. I mean, come yeah. on, it's well, obvious I mean, he was he was he was forced to step down. But I can't believe it took the CBLDF that long to rectify a situation that's been going on so long. Yeah, I think incomprehensible. Uh, I, th I think too. One of the things that's uh, when you when you ask like why haven't they looked into it, I feel like to a certain extent, the board knew about this. Nobody on the board, I mean, there are some newer folks on the board who said they didn't know the specifics, but 
certainly in, in 2006, this all came to light. And folks like Gaiman and Miller presumably knew at least the broad strokes of the story this whole time. And so I think a lot of it is the same thing that happened with uh, Eddie Berganza, which is to say, at the time, it was, all, it was considered all right to kind of give him a slap on the wrist and then to try to hide behind, well, he did his time, so we can't, we can't do anything else. Um, and, and that's obviously not the dynamic that, that we're in now, uh, which is a good thing. But I think that uh, probably what happened with Brownstein is that for a long time, the folks who could have done something about it uh, either didn't care enough to do it or thought that they were hamstrung by the fact that, well, we told him to go to therapy. He went to therapy. Uh, that kind is, of there, is, yeah. there so, is there an element as well that um, uh, Charles Brownstein also had, quite frankly, a lot of powerful um, friends? In without a doubt. Without a doubt. Um, and there, I mean, you could almost uh, take this to other powerful uh, people who've done some pretty uh, despicable acts over the last 10, 15 years. Um, uh, mentioning no names, but I think we, we all know. There, there's, there's no there's, doubt there's, that his power. There, well, yeah, there's numerous, yeah, absolutely. There is no doubt that his power had, had something to do with it. I mean, I, I'm not necessarily sure I agree with you, Russ, on, on the comparisons with, with Braganza, just because I, I, I think Eddie didn't get much of a slap on the wrist until Yeltsin was fired. I mean, he had demoted to group editor, but yeah. the punishment really happened to the the, the women who, who then couldn't work on books like Superman when he was group editor. Um, he, his case was egregious. Yeah. Um, but again, it was because he was, one, apparently good at his job, and, and he had powerful friends that, you know, established, you know, in a career of years of being in the business. And it just goes back to the fact that, despite the fact that comics, in particular the big two, which are run by, by massive corporations, there's still an element of that small town, that small old boys network <laughs> structure that has been in place, you know, since the very beginning. That's and, huge. Yeah, and Sorry. and it's and it's a problem. Like the people could say, "Hey, look, let's give this guy the quote unquote slap on the wrist, send him to therapy, and then all will be fine." I'm like, no, I mean, at a certain point, kick the guy to the curb and and show that you know your actions have consequences. And it's stunning. Look, the CBLDF does great work. I mean, I'm, well, in the yeah, last I mean, 10 years, I bought a bunch of books from them, knowing that it goes toward, towards a good... Absolutely. Right? I mean, yeah, I, 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 I can, I can uh, stand behind that as well, because yeah. uh, they, they put on a couple of panels at uh, MCM. Um, they, um, I put myself forward to panel host for those um, uh, particular spotlight panels. Apparently, an email came back from CBL, um, uh, CBLDF, direct saying he's a good guy uh, Leonard yeah he can host our panels which means I've been endorsed by CBLDF I've backed them by support um, uh, really uh, putting a lot of attention on their recent uh, zoom webinars as well but now I'm I, I, I feel complicit I feel that I shouldn't have been, I should have investigated more and the fact that people are saying that as um, and I'm reading it as an excuse, what does that kind of make me? That I'm I'm making excuses for not doing the research. I mean, um, the, thing I, the thing I will say, and this ties to what Mike was saying about like the small town element of it, is uh, I think that a lot of us in in comics we kind of trust that it's not like this more than we should, yeah. um, and that you know, all of us could use some research. Uh, when I lived in New York City in 2008, I used to do a lot of comic book legal defense fund, like the drink and draw events that they would do in New York and stuff. 
And uh, I distinctly remember coming to one with the girl I was dating and having somebody tell me that Brownstein was, quote, a creep and to keep my girlfriend away from him. I didn't ever think that that was he's an abuser. I thought it was more like, oh, he's going to get drunk and hit on your girlfriend. Uh, and, and so I thought that they were being like cute about it and not that they were giving me an actual warning, uh, which may have been 50, 50, 50, me and them might've been all me being stupid. But I think that there's a lot of that. There's a lot of like, if you don't get the specifics and you just hear like, oh, he's kind of a creep. Uh, there's not necessarily, uh, there's not necessarily a, a propensity to immediately do research, which is hard. Yeah. Look, I think um, one of the problems that, that, that comics has is that a lot of the folks that are being outed for hor horrific behavior are people who do great books and who have also helped other people. We're seeing this with Warren Ellis, who right after the Cameron Stewart stuff started and the, the, the domino effect uh, of, of other people being outed for bad behavior came out. You know, a lot of people came out against Ellis and talked about his behavior and, and accusing him of sexually manipulating younger younger people. You know, and there's a lot of people who struggled with it because they said, you know what, we, you know, they even wrote, they go, yeah, he, he did this to me. I don't want to see his life ruined because he did. There's been a lot of justification. Yeah, he history. helped me out. And, and that's the problem is that we, we expect to find pure villains at the end of this story. And they're not because a lot of these people that have done horrific things also done good work. What people yeah. need to understand is the good work you've done kind of gets, you know, nullified and it does not excuse the horrific behavior. And, yeah. and, and people are having a, a tough time reconciling that. Um, you know, in the case of the, uh, the Dark Horse editor, Scott Alley, I mean, it's, it's mind-boggling me how long that went on. Yeah. Um, I, I read the statement from, from Richard, from Mike Richardson at Dark Horse, um, which I'll, I'll give him credit for acknowledging that he screwed up because everyone else was going to acknowledge it if he wouldn't have. Because for years he excused his bad behavior because he apparently was a really good editor. Yeah. Um, but in the statement where he officially cut ties with him uh, now, after all this came to light, he, he talked about that. He goes, look. Yeah. You know, we, I mean, we it was, it's, it's, like, it's like Mignola uh, when he brought out his statement. I mean, when you read that statement, um, there was a shadow of complicity there was a shadow of acknowledgement but there did seem to be for four or five paragraphs i stuck my head in the sand because he was doing good work on my books yeah uh, and that's that was hard to read um because it at the end of the day we've heard we've read the reports and we've had read the, the comments where people have turned around and said no we came to your office we told you you knew about this this was not Something that you were completely unaware of. Um, I've also and had. Allie, oh, oh, sorry. No, go, go I, I was going to say, Allie to me is is the one that really speaks the most to the dysfunctionality and how we deal with this stuff in comics. Because a lot of a lot of folks had said that Brownstein was an open secret and that there were a lot of mumblings. And obviously, people who were smart enough to have done the homework knew because the Comics Journal covered it twelve years ago. Yeah. But uh, but I don't think it was common knowledge. Uh, in the way that it is with guys like Berganza and Allie. Uh, the fact that Allie happened when it did, 2016 or whatever it was, and uh, that it took another four or five years to, to get him out the door just seems totally unbelievable to me. Like, the fact that everybody knew. Well, because yeah. it's easy to not do the research, right? It's easy to bury your head 
stand, so to speak, and not dig into it. But it, it clearly this was an open secret, right? Just like Eddie Braganza. I remember when I started going to Comic Con, I started to hear that at the hotel bar about him, and I was like, damn, them Like yeah, that's nuts. But it went on for, for years and years. To me, the tragic part of this, and Gail Simone highlights this in a thread about this, is that how many email editors' careers were derailed, or how many female editors decided to quit and leave the business because of this guy? Yeah. And, and that's a shame. And, and, and that is a real shame that potentially, you know, talented contributors to the field of comics, you know, had to make a change because they didn't feel safe enough in their line of work. That's yeah. pretty damn terrible. Yeah, I mean the I mean the reason why I wanted to cover this on this show, and it may seem very inside baseball uh, to talk about this on this particular podcast and this particular show, but I think it's because a lot of the behaviour, certainly when it came to uh, uh, Brownstein, certainly when it came to Ali, they happened at conventions. They happened at those times where uh, a lot of egos were being massaged, a lot of alcohol was flowing, and people were given license to act in ways which are, quite, are, are reprehensible. Um, and I, I just, I'm just really curious to see how this is going to be addressed down the line, because the one thing that I'm afraid of in the, the 2020, in the, the rolling news cycle that we have, where we see a new thing to be, distracted by when we the next the moment we open up twitter the next morning the next thing that's going to come down the line we're going to have um the announcement from dark horse we're going to have the announcement from um uh, cbldf and yes um brownstein has stepped down but i'm afraid that there's going to be no culpability there's no going to be there's no there's going to be no recompense from this and and, it, and people have really suffered um takai has She's had to. She got completely gaslit um, when she came out with the initial um, uh, story, and pretty much got dismissed. And that is something that's going to weigh on a, the industry's should weigh on the industry's conscience for a long time. Um, Russ, you were about to say. Uh, I, I w well, I was I was agreeing with you, but also I oh. was going to say that the the idea that there's no consequences for this bad behavior is not a difficult one to worry about because like when you look at the original uh alley or the original brownstein thing it's like okay so the cbldf founded friends of lulu to help prevent exactly this sort of thing happening and a year later it was gone hmm. yeah. uh, and it was much more quiet when it was gone than it was when they started it uh although ironically when i look when i look back at some of the old headlines the big person who blew the horn about what a bad deal it was that that had disappeared was warren ellis <laughs> yeah. Okay. Look, it just—I I think it behooves anybody who works in in the comics field from uh, from the, the media side. Uh, look, comics journalism is a very friendly endeavor. Um, people who cover comics—I—I I, I don't know one person who covers comics in some capacity that doesn't love comics, right? So you're covering it, and you love it, and it's and it's and some platform that is perpetually in trouble. So there's a certain amount of activism that goes in to the journalism because you feel like you're helping to prop up an industry that's almost always on its last legs, right? It perpetually struggles with that. The, pay, the payment system is a bit awkward as right. well. Right. Yeah. Forget the logistics, but also it's just going to cost you more because when you're paying two different vendors, yeah. 
shipping. It, 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 the shipping costs go up, and there's such razor thin margins in comics anyway, for for comic shops that it's problematic. So I understand it, and I'm certainly I don't want to be insensitive to that. No, absolutely. But I think if if the right choices are made and 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 the mistakes that that are going to be obvious right here at the beginning are addressed and corrected, hopefully, I think ultimately it'll be a good thing because. Go back. If you would have asked people a year ago, hey, is it a good thing that Diamond has the monopoly on comic distribution? Everyone would say no. Yeah. That's never a good thing. Strangely enough, industry. other other than the retailers, because uh, I mean, I started out with exactly the same um, uh, philosophy. I felt that uh, yeah, monopoly is not good. I like the idea of having different choices for business. It it allows people to be competitive. But then you spoke to every retailer going going, and they just went. Yeah, but it was really easy. You had one yeah. list. It was bang, 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 bang. And away we went, and it, it, we got one uh, set of boxes, and we we were fine, and we were happy. And because they've been trained <laughs> to follow a certain process. This is it, absolutely. I'll, yeah. I'll say also, mm. uh, there were some retailers, and especially some of the mid-sized retailers who already have grievances with these really big retailers. Uh, there are some retailers who uh, are really just upset with it because the new distribution houses are owned by Midtown and DCBS. Yeah. And if it were, if you were going to Ingram or something, uh, they wouldn't be as upset. Yeah. Uh, I think the other thing as well that um, really uh, got people thinking is the fact that um, you've also got some uh, heavy attacks uh, that will happen when it comes to certainly getting books to, say, for example, Canada. Um, outside of North America, basically. So it's going to be more expensive to buy your books, uh, certainly the, the single issues uh, when it comes to um, in the in the bricks and mortar stores. And um, also just the fact that, by all accounts, um, for all of Diamond's uh, faults, pros and cons, um, you, they answered the phone call when you rang them. And apparently they answered their emails when you needed support. Mm -hmm. The new guys... Well, the, this, the, the companies that um, uh, DC have got aligned themselves with, not so much. So it's very much um, an interest. I mean, obviously, it's something that's going to play out. We are still seeing stores that are reopening. We are we are not at full capacity yet. So uh, it's going to be interesting to see how uh, that's going to uh, develop. But I wanted to bring it up because um, it just kind of demonstrates that the last month so much has happened. It's just uh, just been insane. I mean, even last month um, we were. I can't. I can't quite remember where we were in terms of um, uh, the the protests on the streets. Where were we? I, I can. Can you remember? They had uh, not started yet. They I had not started. We talked last. Yeah. So that I mean, that's just uh, uh, brought a whole instability to um, society, and it's asked important questions, um, and it's just really kind of um, it's rocking. So many elements of our uh, culture and uh, society to uh, to its core, um, but um, off the back of that particular uh, discussion, uh, we might as well we'll dive into this particular uh, conversation because um, certainly when we talk about speed of events, nothing has happened uh, as fast as I can think of than this week with comics with its own uh, kind of Me Too movement uh, with uh, a number of uh, revelations. Which has sure. led to um, the uh, the dismissal, no, the um, the stepping down of Charles Brownstein at the Comic Book Legal Defense Fund. Um, but it's also led into a whole bunch of other uh, revelations this week. Um, 
two weeks ago, I had the um, honour of hosting the Tripwire Awards, and on that awards, we had um, a, a role of honour given out to Mike Mignola. Um, Mike has been uh, a, a big part of the career of Scott Alley, and that was a whole other um, set of revelations which has come out this week in terms of Dark Horse. Um, we'll start with the uh, CBLDF first. Um, guys, what was your take when that happened? Because it started oh. first with the... I think the thing that's got my angst up and my, my goat about all of this is the fact that this is not a new story. This is no, 15 years. This is 15 years of sustained abuse, and it's not one person; it's many. Why has this been something that has been allowed to fester under the rug? For this Th that's what that's what a lot of people in the industry, including some really big name creators, uh, have been wondering, and that's why you saw, you know, Brian Bendis, for example, a guy who who is obviously a, a powerful voice in comics, and also just a guy who loves the art form, right? And he came flat out. He was one of the first voices once everything started with the Cameron Stewart allegations. And then people came around to bringing up Charles Brownstein. He was like, this is why I don't work with the CBLDF. And Brian does a ton of work with various groups to help comics. And everyone who knows him knows he wants to help uh, the comics industry in any way he can. But he specifically didn't work with the CBLDF because of the guy in charge. And then other creators like Charles Tynan IV. Waited and others, and I'm like, wait. So, this has been going on for years and years. And notable creators, not just indie guys who who have a very small niche audience, but really big name, popular creators, don't do anything with your organization, and you don't seem to to want to investigate why and maybe take a look inside and say, we've got a problem here with yeah. this guy. And at the top, it, literally, the, the the trouble was at the top. And it was mind boggling to me that it took as long as it did. For them to to push him out, I mean, yeah, he stepped down. I mean, come yeah. on, it's well, obvious I mean, he was he was he was forced to step down. But I can't believe it took the CBLDF that long to rectify a situation that's been going on so long. Yeah, I think incomprehensible. Uh, I, th I think too. One of the things that's uh, when you when you ask like why haven't they looked into it? I feel like to a certain extent, the board knew about this. Nobody on the board, I mean, there are some newer folks on the board who said they didn't know the specifics, but certainly in, in 2006, this all came to light. And folks like Gaiman and Miller presumably knew at least the broad strokes of the story this whole time. And so I think a lot of it is the same thing that happened with uh, Eddie Berganza, which is to say, at the time, it was all it was considered all right to kind of give him a slap on the wrist and then to try to hide behind, well, he did his time. So we can't we can't do anything else, um, and and that's obviously not the dynamic that that we're in now, uh, which is a good thing. But I think that uh, probably what happened with Brownstein is that for a long time, the folks who could have done something about it uh, either didn't care enough to do it or thought that they were hamstrung by the fact that well we told him to go to therapy he went to therapy. Uh, that kind is of there, is yeah. there so, is there an element as well that. Um uh, Charles Brownstein also had, quite frankly, a lot of powerful um, friends. In without a doubt, without a doubt. Um, and there, I mean, you could almost uh, take this to other powerful uh, people who've done some pretty uh, despicable acts over the last 10, 15 years. Um, uh, mentioning no names, but I think we, get, we all know. There, the, there's, there's no there's, doubt there's, that there's his power. New, well, yeah, there's numerous, yeah, absolutely. There is no doubt that his power 
had, had something to do with it. I mean, I, I'm not necessarily sure I agree with you, Russ, on, on the comparisons with, with Braganza, just because I, I, I think Eddie didn't get much of a slap on the wrist until the ultimate was fired. I mean, he had demoted to group editor, but yeah. the punishment really happened to the, the, the women who, who, who then couldn't work on books like Superman when he was group editor. Um, he, his case was egregious. Yeah. Um, but again, it was because he was one apparently good at his job, and and he had powerful friends that you know established you know in a career of years of being in the business, and it, it just goes back to the fact that despite the fact that comics, in particular the big two, which are run by by massive corporations, there's still an element of that small town, that small old boys network <laughs> structure that has been in place you know since the very beginning. That's and, huge. Yeah. And, and, it, and it's a problem. Like, the people could say, hey, look, let's give this guy the quote-unquote slap on the wrist, send him to therapy, and then all will be fine. I'm like, no, I mean, at a certain point, kick the guy to the curb and, and show that, you know, your actions have consequences. And it's stunning. Look, the CBLDF does great work. I mean, I'm, well, in the yeah, last I mean, 10 years, I bought a bunch of books from them, knowing that it goes toward, towards a good... Absolutely. I mean, yeah, I, I, I can, I can uh, stand behind that as well because yeah. uh, they they put on a couple of panels at uh, MCM. Um, they, um, I put myself forward to panel host for those um, uh, particular spotlight panels. Apparently, an email came back from CBL um, uh, CBLDF direct saying he's a good guy, uh, Leonard. Yeah, he can host our panels, which means I've been endorsed by CBLDF. I backed them by support. Um, uh, really uh, putting a lot of attention on their recent uh, Zoom webinars as well, but now I'm I, I I feel complicit. I feel that I shouldn't have been, I should have investigated more. And the fact that people are saying that as um, and I'm reading it as an excuse. Well, what does that kind of make me that I'm I'm making excuses for not doing the research? I mean, um, the thing I. The thing I will say, and this ties to what Mike was saying about like the small town element of it, is uh, I think that a lot of us in, in comics, we kind of trust that it's not like this more than we should, yeah. um, and that you know, all of us could use some research. Uh, when I lived in New York City in 2008, I used to do a lot of comic book legal defense fund, like the drink and draw events that they would do in New York and stuff. And uh, I distinctly remember coming to one with the girl I was dating and having somebody tell me that Brownstein was quote a creep and to keep my girlfriend away from him. I didn't ever think that that was, he's an abuser. I thought it was more like, Oh, he's going to get drunk and hit on your girlfriend. Uh, and, and so I thought that they were being like cute about it and not that they were giving me an actual warning, uh, which may have been 50, 50, 50, me and them might've been all me being stupid. But I think that there's a lot of that. There's a lot of like, if you don't get the specifics and you just hear like, oh, he's kind of a creep, uh, there's not necessarily a, there's not necessarily a, a propensity to immediately do research, which is hard. Yeah. <laughs> Look, I think um, one of the problems that that pe that comics has is that a lot of the folks that are being outed for hor horrific behavior are people who do great books and who have also helped other people. We're seeing this with Warren Ellis who right after the Cameron Stewart stuff started and the, the domino effect of, of other people being outed for bad behavior came out. You know, a lot of people came out against Ellis and talked about his behavior and, and accusing him of sexually manipulating younger, younger people. 
you know, and there's a lot of people who struggled with it because they said, you know what, we, you know, they even wrote, they go, yeah, he, he did this to me. I don't want to see his life ruined because he did. There's been a lot of justification. Yeah, he helped me out. And, and that's the problem is that we, we expect to find pure villains at the end of this story. And they're not because a lot of these people that have done horrific things have also done good work. What people yeah. need to understand is the good work you've done kind of gets, you know, nullified and it does not excuse the horrific behavior. And, yeah. and, and people are having a, a tough time reconciling that. Um, you know, in the case of the, uh, the Dark Horse editor, Scott Alley, I mean, it's, it's mind-boggling to me how long that went on. Yeah. Um, I, re I read the statement from, from Richard, from Mike Richardson at Dark Horse, um, which I'll, I'll give him credit for acknowledging that he screwed up because everyone else was going to acknowledge it if he wouldn't have. Because for years he excused his bad behavior because he apparently was a really good editor. Yeah. Um, but in the statement where he officially cut ties with him uh, now, after all this came to light, he, he talked about that. He goes, look. Yeah. You know, we, I mean, we it's, 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 like, it's like Mignola uh, when he brought out his statement. I mean, when you read that statement, um, there was a shadow of complicity. There was a shadow of acknowledgement. But there did seem to be, for four or five paragraphs, I stuck my head in the sand because he was doing good work on my books. Yeah. Uh, and that's that was hard to read because um, at the end of the day, We've heard, we've read the reports and we've had, read the, the comments where people have turned around and said, no, we came to your office. We told you. You knew about this. This was not something that you were completely unaware of. Um, I've also and had... Allie, oh, oh, sorry. No, go, go I, I was going to say, Ali to me is, is the one that really speaks the most to the dysfunctionality and how we deal with this stuff in comics. Because... A lot, of, a lot of folks had said that Brownstein was an open secret and that there were a lot of mumblings. And obviously, people who were smart enough to have done the homework knew because the Comics Journal covered it 12 years ago. Yeah. But, uh, but I don't think it was common knowledge uh, in the way that it is with guys like Berganza and Allie. Uh, the fact that Allie happened when it did, 2016 or whatever it was, and uh, that it took another four or five years to, to get him out the door just seems totally unbelievable to me. Like the fact that everybody knew. Well, because yeah. it's easy to not do the research, right? It's easy to bury your head in the sand, so to speak, and not dig into it. But it, it proves this was an open secret, right? Just like Eddie Berganza. I remember when I started going to Comic-Con, I started to hear that at the hotel bar about him. And I was like, damn, they haven't fired him? Like, yeah, that's nuts. But it went on for, for years and years. To me, the tragic part of this, and Gail Simone highlighted this in a thread about this, is that how many email editors' careers were derailed, or how many female editors decided to quit and leave the business because of this guy? Yeah. It does. And that's a shame. And, 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 and that is a real shame that a potentially, you know, talented contributors to the comic, you know, had to make a change because they didn't feel safe enough in their line of work. And that's yeah. pretty damn terrible. Yeah, I mean the I mean the reason why I wanted to cover this on this show, and it may seem very inside baseball uh, to talk about this on this particular podcast and this particular show, but I think it's because a lot of the behaviour, certainly when it came to uh, uh, Brownstein, certainly when it came to Ali, they happened at conventions. They happened at those times where uh, a lot of egos were being massaged, a lot of alcohol was flowing, and 
people were given license to act in ways which are quite are, are reprehensible. Um, and I, I just, I'm just really curious to see how this is going to be addressed down the line. Because the one thing that I'm afraid of in the, the 2020, in the, the rolling news cycle that we have, where we see a new thing to be distracted by when we the next the moment we open up twitter the next morning the next thing that's going to come down the line we're going to have um the announcement from dark horse we're going to have the announcement from um uh, cbldf and yes um brownstein has stepped down but i'm afraid that there's going to be no culpability there's no going to be there's there's going to be no recompense from this And, And and people have really suffered um Takai as she's had to she got completely gaslit um, when she came out with the initial um, uh, story and pretty much got dismissed and that is something that's going to weigh on a, the industry's con- should weigh on the industry's conscience for a long time. Um, Russ, you were going to say, uh, I, I w- well, I was I was agreeing with you, but also I oh. was going to say that the. The idea that there's no consequences for this bad behavior is not a difficult one to worry about because, like, when you look at the original uh, Alley or the original Brownstein thing, it's like, okay, so the CBLDF founded Friends of Lulu to help prevent exactly this sort of thing happening, and a year later it was gone. Hmm. Yeah. Uh, and it was much more quiet when it was gone than it was when they started it. Uh, although, ironically, when I look when I look back at some of the old headlines, the big person who blew the horn about what a bad deal it was that that had disappeared was Warren Ellis. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Okay. Look, it just, I, I think it behooves anybody who works in, in the comics field from, uh, from the, the media side. Uh, look, comics journalism is a very friendly endeavor. Um, people who cover comics, I, I, I don't know one person who covers comics in some capacity that doesn't love comics, right? So you're covering it, and you love it, and it's and it's and it's a platform that is perpetually in trouble. So there's a certain amount of activism that goes in to the journalism because you feel like you're helping to prop up an industry that's almost always on its last legs, right? It's perpetually struggling from a variety of different standpoints: attention, sales, yada yada. But sometimes things come across that demand hard questions to be asked of the people in charge, and that jeopardizes people's access. That jeopardizes relationships. Because Russ will tell you, a lot of us are we're we're friends with a lot of publicists. I'm I consider myself pretty decent friends with a couple of dark horse publicists, and I feel kind of terrible because they're female publicists that I've never discussed something like this with them, um, like you know the situation. Because clearly, I'm sure they knew about it, and I'm sure they you know had to weigh on them. So for me, I think moving forward, it demands that those of us who cover the industry ask certain questions, like okay. So in the wake of the Scott Alley, what are you guys doing? What what's the follow up on on Dark Horse's plan to improve their workplace situation? Are you going to are you purposely hiring more female creators? Are you putting female? Uh, um, are you hiring women to be uh, in charge of uh, of books? More female letters. Same thing with DC and Marvel. Those are the questions that need to be asked. But there's follow up and there's accountability for for the actions and and that they actually go through with some of the things that they say they're going to do in the statements that happen. Because too much of what happens in, in our line of work is, okay, they, they put out a statement, they say it, so we move on, 
we've got to be able to ask those uncomfortable questions in the middle of the happy Comic-Con. Hey, we're releasing a brand new X-Men crossover. Okay, great. One more question. What are we, we going to do about, you know, uh, putting more females in charge of uh, the hiring process in management at Marvel or DC or whatever company you want to make? Uh, Mike, we are struggling to hear you just a little bit. Um, I'm just wondering if you can, um, while I kind of bring something up, um, if you go into the audio settings um, uh, in the, uh, the the cam mic button down at the bottom, if you uh, disable audio processing, it does kind of help um, just equalize the, the sound a little bit better, just to, to bring that up, and we'll, we'll kind of see where you get with that. How about that? A bit better? That's a bit better. There we go. That's, that's spot on. Um, also, Russ, uh, I mean, this is obviously, um, this is not combative, but um, it's... Uh, to clarify some details, Jackie Estrada is watching. Hello there, Jackie. Welcome along. Um, just a, a sidebar, I'm really hoping that um, the Eisners, um, we, I mean, we're going to be covering a little bit in, uh, on the actual Eisner um, situation, which is happening with the, the voting. But um, I personally hope that uh, the, the awards go well and the online uh, efforts uh, with the Eisners go well. Um, Jackie does say uh, CBLDF did not create Friends of Lulu. Uh, it was a completely different organization, do you research? Um, I, I'm, I'm certain that uh, that's not uh, combative in any way, but Russ, just to uh, to state and correct on that one. Yeah, that was... When when they when they started, I think that my confusion is because the CBL, CBLDF was supposedly kicking a bunch of money into it to offset their effect, their impact or something, so I apologize. Okay. And I just want to uh, say hi to Jackie because I talked to her for my... Comic-Con and 50 podcasts, and some of the stories she had were amazing. She is a fountain of San Diego Comic-Con knowledge. I have been trying to get her on the show for a while because I'd like to talk to her about Comic-Con um, Amazing history. interview. Yeah. She has some of the best stories I heard from any of the people I interviewed for that podcast series. Absolutely. Um, I think, the, the, like I say, the overriding um, thing for myself when it comes to the entire situation is the idea that we continue to carry the story forward and make sure that it doesn't just um, dwindle dwindle away. Um, one element of it I know that um, has yet to be fully uh, realized is Shy Allett, uh, who is a uh, publisher. Uh, sorry, she's a, um, a PR uh, person and she's um, known within the industry. Uh, she was uh, an intern with um, the uh, CBLDF and has uh, she was, did leave under... Um, a cloud, but it wasn't of her making, um, so to speak. At which point, um, uh, she was asked to sign an, um, a non-disclosure. Um, the recent announcement from uh, the CBLDF was that that um, has she has been released from that um, NDA, and I think it's telling that and very clever on her part that she is she didn't just come straight out and tell her side of the story. She's waited, and I think she's going to help the conversation move forward. Like I say, in today's uh, news cycle, and the way that everything just kind of moves at such a fast pace and things can get forgotten and dismissed a little bit further down the line, even a couple of days after things have been announced, I'm hoping that Shai's um, uh, side of the, her story um, does continue to put the spotlight on CBLDF, if anything, because I think, like we've discussed, um, there needs to be more uh, culpability. I think the needs, I mean, for myself, I've done a little bit of research in the fact that the actual operation of CBLDF 
is down to a very, very small pe number of people. I think it's less than five and Brownstein at the top, the top of that particular tree. You had the board of directors and you had the um, the, the honorary board of directors, the kind of uh, the, the artists. The advisory committee. The advisory committee. But the actual operation, operation of C, um, CBLDF, it's a very, very small number of people indeed. Um, and I'm hoping that there is going to be more transparency in the organization um, in terms of its selection of the cases that it takes on, the um, behavior of some of its um, participants. The I, I'm just hoping there's going to be more, that the conversation doesn't stop here. It cannot stop here. It's simple as that. Um, I think anyone who wants to... One, kind of one thing that you brought up is the Shy Allet situation. I really applaud her for kind of taking this moment to bring attention to this practice of... Uh, making problems go away by having people sign an NDA in order to get their last two weeks pay or whatever it is that you're getting out of it. Uh, this is obviously not a comic specific thing. This is something that everybody does. Uh, but when you start to have these kind of springs of allegations that come up, uh, I, I think that there are a lot of people who uh, find themselves in a position where it's like, no, this would be a good time for me to join this conversation, but I can't because I signed a contract. Yeah. Um, any other last comments, uh, Mike, or have we, have you said You know, I want to, I want to, I want to give some credit to Aviva May for, for her contributions here, because when she came out w with her, uh, story about how Cameron Stewart, uh, treated her, that really got the ball rolling in this. And I think she also helped other, other women who were victimized by him and other people who, who had had similar experiences with other creators in comics, it helped, it, helped, it helped them find their voice and to come forward with it. And I think that was re really important. I mean, when you're the first person to come out and take that step, it's a risk. You don't know how it's going to go. And, and she did it. And, you know, I, I applaud her for, for, for that because um, to be the first one to come out and, 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 and talk about something like that is, is a brave thing to do. And, and look, we're talking about all this stuff in the last two weeks because of her, when she yeah. when she stated that against uh, against Cameron Stewart, that got the ball rolling and got other people to come on and say, "Hey, it's it's not just him; it's this person, it's that person." And it got the Charles Brownson story back in the in the in the public conversation. And it's important because we're seeing change now happening, you know. And, and some of these guys they're, they're seeing consequences happening. Stewart's lost a book at DC. Warnellis had a, a short story pulled from uh, the. Uh, the death metal anthology book that's coming up. And that's important because there has to be consequences for the actions, not just a statement from the publisher that, hey, we're going to do better. No, somebody's well, also going to lose, you know, work. If, if you can't behave yourself, if you're going to behave like a, an awful human being, well, then yeah. we're not going to give you work. Yeah. Uh, Dan Berry reminds us as well about um, uh, Vault cancelling the new book from Mike Cole um, yeah. as well. Uh, I mean, it did seem every day, and I, 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 I when I think the reason why the conversation, while I want the conversation to keep going, I want people to be held responsible for their actions. Um, comics, I mean, we talked at the top of the show, comics is in a really transitional time at the moment. It's in a very difficult time in terms of the retailers. Um, it's, this is a really, it's a tough time for comics. And then to have this come along, it, but it's such an a, a important conversation to have. And while I think a number of people would have wanted 
perhaps this to just go away, um, just to kind of allow the, the comics industry to heal. I don't think this, it can't go away. It can't, it can't stop. Um, I think, yeah, I think we. if there's any other contributions from anyone else, uh, please do jump in with the, uh, the comments. We'll, uh, we'll come back and uh, talk a little bit more if needs be. Uh, but yeah, I mean, for, for myself, as somebody, like I say, who um, has supported um, CBLDF and um, also, um, I mean, for myself, I would uh, personally suggest um, supporting Hero Initiative, which is another um, uh, organization which um, really goes out of its way to uh, support um, in its very special way. Um, but it's going to be very difficult for CBLDF to earn anybody's trust back until they have some form of uh, transparency. And also, I think, some more support from, like you say, those board of directors. Um, I know, has, has Jim Lee made a statement yet? I, I don't uh, believe so. I don't believe anybody from DC has made a... Uh, Neil, Neil Gaiman as, hasn't said anything. As far as I know, the only person from the advisory board who said anything was Frank Miller, and yeah. Frank said that he's done with them. Yeah. yeah. So, it, and he said that before Brownstein. Uh, yeah, before down, he stepped right? down, about six hours before, I think. Yeah, I think that's the other thing as well—the fact that he stepped down, and therefore there was from that there is now no way of him properly investigating what he did. And who too? And I think that's that's another blight on CBLDF, which they're going to have to reconcile before anyone yeah. um, moves forward with them. Um, we'll move on to our next topic, but um, before we do that, I think um, something I wanted to bring up, and uh, I think we all would like to uh, show our respects uh, to the people that we've lost in the uh, the month that we've had uh, between our last conversation. Um, Joe Sinnott, um, uh, as um, uh, Mike, I mean, well, Mike, I'll, I'll open the floor to you, so on this one, if you like. I mean, what can you say about a guy who, look, being one of the founding members of the Marvel bullpen isn't even the greatest thing he did in his life. The guy was a war hero. He was one of the Navy Seabees in World War II. Uh, I mean, and by all accounts, like, if, you, if there's a Facebook group that I'm on uh, for, for original art collectors, and a lot of uh, great artists from the 70s and 80s and early 90s are on it, and they all talked about him like uh, a father figure to them, and how how wonderful it was. Guys like Ron Friends and Ron Mars, and and Paul Kupperberg, all these different creators who talked about how they meet the great Joe Sinnott, the guy who who inked Kirby's greatest FF stories, and they'd meet him at shows. And he put him at ease and he talked to them. Oh, it was just amazing to see that kind of outpouring. Because to me, I just knew him as a name in the credits of those early FF books that I'd, that I'd read, you know, uh, when I first got into comics. And then I started noticing when I started buying my own FF books, oh, wait, he's still linking the books. It was crazy. Like, Santa was one of the most important guys in Marvel because he helped the continuity. Uh, when Kirby left the FF, he stayed on there because he could help smooth the transition so it wouldn't be so jarring for, for, for the reader to see uh, a John Buscema or when George Perez inked. You, you saw his inks because he could make the thing look like the thing was supposed to look, especially at a time when Marvel really was pushing the house style, right? I mean, and it was unbelievable. There wasn't an artist that he inked that he couldn't make look better with his inks. I mean, the guy was an unbelievable inker. 
It was, it was yeah. incredible. Like even the only piece of art that I have that, that he touched was a, a Dazzler number three cover. It was my favorite comics as a kid because I remember it just has a lot of nostalgia for me. And I bought the art off of Brent Anderson, the, the artist, years ago, like 15 years ago. And I had to go back and forth with Brent about it because he didn't want to let it go, not because he gave a damn about Dazzler, but because it was the only piece of art in his career that he had that the great Joe Sennett had inked. And so I finally convinced him to, to sell it to me, and I paid a, what I think was an exorbitant price back then. Um, now I look back on it, and it was a steal. When I, got it, when I got it in my hands, I realized why Brent didn't want to let it go. It was immaculate. It was so clean. Not a hint of white out anywhere, and it's this cover where Dazzler is skating, and she ends up right at the feet of, of Dr. Doom. Um, it's hanging in another room, or else I'd, I'd, I'd turn the camera and show it to you. But it's a great cover when you look at the black and white drawing because you realize how precise it had to be. And I'm telling you, it was so clean that I even joked and I sent Brent an email. I go, did you just recreate this and pretend to sell me the original cover? Because this looks really, really clean. The only thing that, that was a dead giveaway that it was original was the stamp on the back. But that's how great an inker he was. Like even in, in the early 80s when that cover was drawn, he could still do it just right. Oh, what an artist. And I'll say too, for from my perspective, because I, I actually, you know, again, I'm from upstate New York, and so those guys, friends and Mars and everybody, like that's my region, Mark Dematis, and so I've met Joe at, at conventions a bunch of times. He come, uh. he, he would come to like if there were eight guys in a room somewhere, Joe was there. Um, I'm so jealous right now, just Rose. Such a sweet, like he was such a sweet guy. He never ever like there was never a time he didn't want to stop and talk to you about whatever whatever it was that you asked him about the '60s and '70s. Um, and, uh, his, towards the end when he was less able to draw, he had his grandkids who would, who would kind of cart him around to all these shows and, and he would be able to just sit there and talk and they would sell all the little sketches that he'd done at home. Uh, but even after that, when, when people, when they were saying that like, well, Joe can't do commissions cause he can't draw anymore. His version of can't draw, I'll, I'll have to scan it and put it online. I have a little, one of those three by five kind of sketch cards from him. It's fucking beautiful. Sorry. <laughs> no, no, no. Um, I, I'll take swearing on this one uh, because uh, if anyone deserves some uh, uh, some hyperbolic uh, language, uh, it's uh, it's deserved. Um, certainly uh, for myself. Uh, I mean, I came to Joe's work um, pretty late on uh, because I came in through uh, British artists and uh, the, the kind of British sure. invasion way, and I came in to American comics um, certainly around the the mid eighties, early nineties. And then I went uh, back and was uh, looking at the work of Kirby and looking at Sinnott's um, work on, on the book that he did, and, or did uh, does many of the books. Um, yeah, I, I can't really add too much more to what you're, you guys are saying, apart from it's just an incredible loss. I'll say that it was a great innings um, for, for, uh, for Joe and also uh, for the next person to talk about, Denny O'Neill. Now, this is somebody I did know more about because uh, I was very much a Batman uh, kid when I was growing up. Um, the, if you know the the book, the uh, Batman from the forties to the forties to the seventies, yeah, uh, the, yeah you, you know, the, great you, book. know the, you know the book. Um, it was one of the first kind of big compilations that my mum bought me, and I saw like poured through the, the history of Batman in there. And in there is uh, Secret of the Waiting Graves, which to my mind is still my favourite. Uh, Batman story. Um, it, it's a little bit. It's strange enough to be not so much the Dark Knight Detective, which is my personal 
favorite iteration of the of Batman, but it's it goes into vampires. It goes into a, a really strange uh, mythology. But the work and the way that it was paced, and the way that the story was constructed, that's all Denny O'Neill. Um, somebody else yeah. who uh, has passed away uh, again. Uh, another good in, in, good innings, and from all accounts, was um, bright and fresh and sharp, even to uh, the, the the last few um, weeks of his life. Um, I, I I don't know who wants to jump in on this one really briefly. Well, Russ, you could start this one. I started. I started with Joe. <laughs> yeah, with Denny, it's it's funny. Um, I uh, I was writing up. I, I I ended up having to write the obituary for Denny, and uh, you get. I was just getting choked up writing about it, uh, which doesn't often happen to me because you know you you get used to writing those things. Uh, but when I was first into comics, I came into comics through the like explosion of the '90s and the death of Superman and everything. But one of the first things that I discovered was Green Lantern, Green Arrow. And so I've read that more times than almost anything else in the last, you know, 30 years. And uh, I've read a lot of interviews with Denny and I've watched everything that I can watch on YouTube and all that kind of stuff. And he's one of those guys who just always seemed to be focused. Like he always seemed to have to know what it was that he wanted. Uh, and, and I think that that's really remarkable in an industry where so much is driven by like what's fashionable at the moment. Uh, and I think that you can see continuity of like Denny's philosophy that runs through not just his writing, but his editing. And you can see elements of the same moral code that drove the, the politics of Green Lantern and Green Arrow playing through in, uh, Azrael, which was his last like great run, uh, in the nineties. And so I, it, he's one of those guys who never lost a step and who always seemed to, to love comics, to love the craft, and to have a real sense of uh, focus and ethics that went into everything he did. And uh, he's going to be really missed. You know, for, for me, what's interesting to me, because I'm a big Batman guy too, the first Denny O'Neill story I can remember reading was a Spider-Man story. He did Amazing Spider-Man annual 15 and a story that he wrote that Frank Miller illustrated it involves Dr. Octopus and, and the Punisher. And what, it, what I love about it, I've read that story maybe 20 times and I'm in the middle of an epic Spider-Man reread the last two months and I've read it again. And what's fascinating to me is that story outlined one of the great threads that went through his career, how he wove journalism into a, a lot of the comic stories that he did because, you know, he worked as a journalist at one point and so did I, and, and I really, it, to me, being a newspaper writer was one of the first things I wanted to be. And that story is great because it really shows how a newspaper story comes together, at least, you know, in, in the Spider-Man world. Uh, and it was fascinating to me that two of the most consequential voices in the history of Batman were a part of this great self-contained Spidey story. Because as I went back and I'd read all the Batman stories of his, um, and Evan Narcisse, who I'm sure you know, Russ, and Leonard, I'm sure you know him too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He made a really great point right after Denny died on Twitter that he may be the most important voice in the, in the evolution of Batman because as a writer and editor, he was there for some of the most important parts of the Batman story. You know, he, he, he pulled him out of the camp world that the TV show had put him in and just as the Silver Age was ending, right? He, he brought him into the darkness again 
for the Bronze Age. And he helped create some of the best and most enduring characters in the Bat mythos. You know, one of my personal favorites, Talia al Ghul, right? Who's been so important. Raz al Ghul, I mean, the list goes on and on. But more importantly, he set the tone for what Batman would be for the next 20, 30, 40 years. Yeah, The Dark Knight Returns may be the most important Batman story. But in terms of long-lasting impact, nobody's had more of an impact on that character than Denny. If it wasn't for Denny's stories, you wouldn't have... The, I mean, the, 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 the Dark Knight yeah. Returns, uh, that sat on decades of work, which uh, Denny O'Neill uh, put in. Um, we've got somebody who's sat in the background um, who I was going to bring on as a special guest, and um, I'm, I'm hoping that he'll be willing to kind of jump in just with a couple of thoughts, if possible. Uh, we've got John McRae who's uh, joining us. He's going to be a little bit of a special guest in a bit. Hello there, John. How are you, sir? Hey, John. Um, not too bad, thanks. How's yourselves? Fine, thank you. Um, we're going to dive into uh, the Isers and another bit of serious talk in a minute, but just we are talking about uh, Joe Sinnott and we are talking about Denny O'Neill. Uh, if you can kind of talk about your thoughts about um, any impact uh, that the, the two men's work had on your work. Uh, well, I didn't read much Denny O'Neill stuff. I must admit, I, I was a big um, Marvel head for most of my uh, superhero reading career, I guess. Um, so uh, from that point of view, Sinnott has much more of an impact on me. Sure. Um, directly, I suppose, but of course, indirectly, Denny has a huge impact too because he has shaped and influenced so much of how comics look these days uh, and read these days, yeah. just through that sort of more of a more real uh, sort of angle. And uh, so, yeah, I mean, I mean, I never met Denny except I walked past him once on an aeroplane uh, as I was going to my seat. He was in first class, I believe, and I was in the hold. Uh, so I had to go past him to be uh, put there. But um, so, and, and I, I never met Joe Sinnott, but Sinnott was an amazing artist and worked, of course, with Kirby. And uh, through all those FFs and onward and, and beyond Kirby and unified the look of the FF to make it what it was, really. Um, and so he was a, a powerful influence on anybody who picked up a brush or a pen, I guess. Sure. Um, and I... An amazing talent and still working until his final days. So yeah, just a brilliant, brilliant artist and and uh, finisher and inker. Um, uh, you know, I read the FF probably from about issue. I don't know. I started picking it up around about issue thirty or something like that. So wow. we were just getting to the really good stuff, I suppose. Um, and uh, yeah, I loved I loved all that stuff and. It, it, his his work over Kirby just made it just glow, didn't it? Really. Uh, so yeah, that would. Uh, I'm, you know, I I wasn't expecting to be saying anything about it. <laughs> Sorry about that. Yeah, just I did kind of throw I mean, you in under the I, bus on that one. No, no, I, <laughs> I I should have expected to you know considering that if this has just happened in the last few days that 
maybe yeah. that might be touched upon. <laughs> but of course, I have got the uh, mind of a lemon. So you know, <laughs> fair enough. Fair enough. Fair enough. Fair enough. Well, I mean, we'll we'll leave you on screen. And uh, heaven knows, okay. I mean, you've got solicitors Meg asking any chance we can see what you're working on. But yeah, <laughs> what's on the board, John? What's, what's on, on the board? board? Uh, it's a, I'm drawing magic as at the moment. Um, it's a commission piece, I suppose. Uh, I like the drawing magic. I draw. I draw the commission a lot. pieces that you've been putting out on your social media has been stunning, by the way. Oh, thank I mean, you. That, 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 that dread, that dread was gorgeous. Uh, well, cheers. Yes, <laughs> yes. My, that that one. Uh, my probably my biggest critic is my younger brother Jasper, <laughs> and uh, he said it didn't suck, which was. Uh, <laughs> You know, probably I, I was dancing for the rest of the day. Brothers, that. Have, brothers have a way of doing that, man. Good boy. Yeah, well, no, no. I mean, he cheered me right up with that. Of course, yes, so the, the rest of my life has been a misery, but up until now, I've got that. <laughs> well, so, um, so, yeah. well, thank saying you. That, I appreciate it. Saying that looks awesome. And also, uh, a couple of comments. Uh, Into the Blue Mister, some of the first Batman graphic novels I bought were those four or five issue collections of Denny O'Neill, Neil Adam's story. They blew me away. I mean, I think, I, I don't know if I'm going to be speaking out of turn. I'm just wondering if uh, the work that Denny did on comics um, and the way that he influenced, like you say, the tone and the morals of, uh, and the, the, the integrity of the books that he did. I mean, that also could um, be seen as some of the bedrock for the uh, the, the British invasion uh, comic uh, creators that came over in the sort of like late seventies, early eighties, and that sort of like that kind of it, it was a bedrock for them to come over and create what they were doing with the, the likes of uh, uh, Frank Miller. I think. Uh, uh, sorry, the likes of um, uh, uh, Swamp Thing and. Uh, um, Neil Gaiman and Salmon. I think there's that's a, that, a, that that's a rude of, description of Alan Moore. I know. I'm sorry about that. Yeah. Sorry. My, my, my apology. Yeah. Well, I'm certain Alan's a regular viewer, so I apologise on uh, on that one. Right. Uh, I know that the guys are going to have to go very quickly, so we'll quickly touch on this topic. And I know that Jackie may or may not be watching. So any comments, Jackie, please do uh, dive in. But this is about uh, the uh, the Eisners, which we'll touch on uh, quickly. Um, I know this is something that. Um, uh, Russ wanted to bring up, um, and, but uh, I certainly wanted to talk about in the fact that um, this is something else, an institution which um, has had its serious knock uh, in the last week uh, in terms of, for the general um, public, it felt like it was um, just a form fail. Um, it was something, an, admini an administration error uh, on a website, but it seems to be a little bit more than that in terms of just how I'm not going to say antiquated, but it certainly was open for abuse uh, on the on the back end. Uh, Russ, any thoughts on how I this don't is know. Gone? I mean, I don't know a ton about because I I hadn't worked on f post that first story about it. I haven't written much about the follow ups. Um, so when I was looking at it, it still seemed like it was a fairly uh, routine failure. But I will say that. Even based on that initial statement, it's like if forms are auto-populating with other people's information, that's a huge problem because not only does it potentially impact the votes, but also it potentially impacts everybody's privacy. Yeah. Uh, and it sounds to me, and again, like not speaking as an expert, just speaking as somebody who's seen a lot of these kinds of fails on, on websites, it sounds to me like this is just the kind of thing that happens when you fall into a groove, you're happy with your provider, 
and they're doing no extra work uh, to kind of keep up with what's going on now on the internet. And so it probably is not uh, SDCC's fault, the Eisner's fault, so much as it is their provider, but it probably does put them in a position where now they, they must have a lot more oversight and a lot more awareness of what's going on with that provider. Yeah, and I think that's a good. I think that's a good uh, follow up on, on their part. I, I thought the statement was 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 pretty good. They they realized it, and I, I kind of agree with Russ. I think this this is really a, a situation where maybe yeah, there's a, little, a certain amount of complacency with the, the provider of that site. And look, we're in an age where internet security is one of the most important things. If, and if you're any kind of business, it's literally your top priority, uh, along with customer service, right? Because if you can't keep your, your system secure and safe, then you can't keep your customer's information secure and safe. And that's a big, big problem. So I thought it was a good thing to, to, to approach it and say, you know what? Let's redo the votes. Because if there's any question about it, you need to address it and be, be upfront about it. Have some transparency and just do it over again. Sure. Look, and it's and not like they, and it's not like they have a, a hard deadline about a convention, you yeah. know, on July twenty fifth. <laughs> there, there would literally be no excuse for them to not try to get this right this year. So um, I'm glad that they did that. I don't know about that because the way that I mean, like myself, I mean, I uh, have got press for uh, San Diego Comic Con. You guys have as well, and yeah. the fact that we've had to apply for, for press for a virtual Comic Con <laughs> is one of the most bizarre things I've had to sit down and organise. Um, that's the the fact that they are organising this uh, like it is a physical con. It's the event that is actually going to be taking place day to day and i fully expect we're going to be seeing a schedule list come out just like um, we have um in previous cons the thursday sure. for thursday friday for friday I, that's that's odd to me <laughs> for a virtual oh convention not so same. i think i think so i think not saturday night sat, uh, sorry friday night you're gonna see that virtual uh, eisners and the, the fact that they they're gonna have to get this fixed get those new votes collated from people who may not have known about the issues and votes may be lost. Um, I think that it's going to be very odd for that to happen. I mean, Will like it be shorter said, than the four hours that it usually is? <laughs> <laughs> um, you know what? I suspect it might be. Who knows? Um, Could you imagine I, four hours in a Zoom room? <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> oh, God. Um, that would be painful. That would be painful. But like I say, I mean, I have, I have every faith in uh, Jackie because uh, she puts on a great show. And, I do um, think it's worth kind of pointing out uh, just before San Diego took over the Eisners was the yeah. last time there was a serious problem with the voting. Yeah. And uh, so this is something where we've gone this long without there being a really serious problem. And so I think that speaks to the fact that they're going to be able to bounce back. Like, I don't think that this is a serious long-term problem. I think it'll be fixed this year. Uh, and uh, I, I expect that they will... I mean, when you look at the, the, the website that we all look at, at Comic-Con.org and, and, like, our press site and everything like that, like, that all seems very secure and very up-to-date. And so I feel like what's going to happen here is that even if they need to take it over themselves, they'll just be like, no, this is going to be done right. Yeah. Google Forms, man. It's end-to-end -end encryption. Just Google, for <laughs> Google Forms it. Just get it done. Anyway, 
Guys, um, this has been a little bit more serious than the, yeah. the last conversation we had. It was the reason why I think a lot a little, of people. We, the last conversation we had was so light, and I think that's what people really responded to. But we had some topics that we had to address, and uh, I really appreciate you coming on and talking about it. Um, I hope it hasn't turned you off possibly having a third of these, but um, I'd love to get you guys back because if anybody. I mean, I, I was always told um, the best way to run a podcast is to get guys on that are smarter than you. And my God, you two just I'm not sure about that. I mean, you may have oh, failed in that regard. But. You, you two blow me out of the water. So uh, there we go. Listen, I know that Mike's got to get off and I'm going to let Russ get off and enjoy the rest of his day as well. Unless, of course, you want to stick around because, like I say, we've got John McRae and uh, I'm certain if you have any questions that you, you're more than welcome to ask. But, well, I'll tell um, you what, why don't I stick around for about five, ten minutes with John, and then I can uh, I can pop off and let you guys talk to somebody who's a lot smarter than me. <laughs> oh, my God. Okay, fair enough. Thank you very much, indeed. Um, Mike, I don't know if you want to stick around as well, but, um, it, yeah, it, it'd be a, a I got to go be a dad. My, my kids are waiting for me to take him for a bike ride. You do, right. Um, we'll, let, we'll let you get off then. Mike, take care and enjoy the rest of your Sunday, sir. Always good talking See with you soon. guys. See take you care of that, man. Look after yourself. Right, um, let's bring him on then. Um, I didn't announce this gentleman because I wanted this to be a bit of a special guest, uh, and it's a pleasure to have him on. John McRae, everybody. Uh, John, it's a pleasure to have you joining us. Thank you so much indeed. No, my pleasure. Absolutely no problems. Uh, uh, I mean, I, yeah, I mean, the, the reason why I, I, uh, I first approached you is because when, as part of the, uh, the, the taking of the show to two uh, times a week was we were doing these um, sections at the end where we were showcasing kickstarters and we were showcasing the way that people sure. were uh, exploring um, self-publishing and kickstarters and mm -hmm. self-raising of funds to reach their audience with uh, new projects uh, and i know that you've got your own and that's where uh, that conversation yep. came in and that's the reason why uh, you're joining us uh, but I, I certainly want to just kind of uh, uh, talk to you about um, john mccray in the age of covid uh, i mean how has the last three months been for you is it been uh, I mean yeah, yeah what's it been like it's been interesting that's for <laughs> sure hello Russ by the way I've interviewed John a couple uh, times but never seen him in person so it's good to put oh, right, okay. <laughs> good lord yeah what a what a horror show anyway um, <laughs> <laughs> the um, uh, yes it's been interesting um, I have uh, had to do a Kickstarter because basically uh, things have been tricky with myself and Jerry Duggan uh, working on Dead Eyes. Uh, there's certain chunks of Dead Eyes history. It's the book that we're doing for Image Comics. And there's certain chunks or a big chunk of Dead Eyes history that I can't talk about <laughs> at all due to various reasons. Um, and due to that, plus the impact of COVID, it has been a double whammy to us. And we are slightly reeling, should we yeah. say. Should we say. Um, so I suggested to Jerry that because I have, you know, 30, nearly 35 years worth of back history and quite a lot of it is creator own stuff shockingly uh considering i seem to have worked most of my time for marvel and dc and for fleetway uh, as they were um 
but I actually still do have a, a whole pile of creator-owned stuff. So I thought that the best way to help us with dead eyes and whatever else we wanted to do going forward would be to package up all my old creator-owned stuff, uh, put a bit of a shine on it with some new bits and pieces thrown in to sweeten the deal and put it out. Um, and I think that, I mean, Jerry was very happy because if I make, if we make any money out of this, um, then uh, going forward, we'll use that to kind of help finance dead eyes and whatever new IPs we want to do. Obviously, I think uh, the person, there's a person who's helping me with the Kickstarter because the fact that I'm actually managing to talk to you on this little thing here with screens and stuff, um, and it's not exploding or what have you, <laughs> is, is a miracle in itself because I'm a moron when it comes to anything technical at all. So Kickstarter seemed like a labyrinth. Um, so I've got this uh, a young woman who's done a couple of Kickstarters, Kat Hemmings, and she is helping me navigate all the general nuts and bolts of it all um, while I can get on with just sort of tracking down editors who have my uh, the, the files of my older work or going up into the attic and duck scrolling through lots and lots of artwork and digging out all these bits and pieces that I have and rescanning them. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, an, it's, it's interesting. And I, I, I had thought that, that maybe I would have, a, you know, a, I'm, what my general idea was, was that I wanted to do books that were like those old British Marvel, or not necessarily Marvel, but those British annuals that sure. you used to get. Um, my favorite thing at Christmas was getting an annual or two or three. Um, and they, these were the UK annuals, by the way, Russ. They, they were hardback reprints of old old comics, but also they had things like puzzle pages and features and articles and things like that all interspersed throughout. And I wanted to do the same sort of thing with this book. Um, as it turned out, I've got so much stuff, I'm going to do four of them. Oh, wow. uh, one a year, one a year for the next four years, 200 pages each. So that's 800 pages of stuff. Um, but yeah, I've done a lot of creator-owned work, as it turns out, and some of it's quite interesting too. The Garth and my first work together, which wasn't Troubled Souls. Oh, which okay. This is where I was going like this because I was going Troubled Souls. Come on, bring it on. No, no, no. I'm not reprinting Troubled Souls because basically Garth would not want me to. And actually, I'm not 100% sure we really own Troubled Souls. Uh, it's I, a bit problem. That, that whole Crisis Fleetway hmm. thing is a very yes. <laughs> is a bit of a quagmire, is that? Yeah, yeah. I mean, they, back when Fleetway started to go into new creator-owned stuff, around about crisis time, there was this big heralding of we're going to introduce creator-owned work and you're going to own it and there'll be reprint fees and you'll get royalties. And some of that came to pass, for sure. Uh, but the creator-owned bit was... Eh. So um, so anyway, I've got, I've got a little bit of work that Garth and I did for Deadline. It's, it's I mean, it's not much, but it's there. Um, and I did a, quite a bit of stuff for Deadline. Most of it's sadly forgotten. And, uh, <laughs> or maybe not sadly, I don't know. 
Uh, Mark Miller's very first work was with me. Um, so we're reprinting that story too. And uh, there's a bunch of other stuff by Phil Hester, Jamie Delano, Tom Pear, um, and, and, and other luminaries. So um, anybody stupid enough to have teamed up with me really over the years, I'm going to sort of strong arm them into allowing me to put it into put this stuff in books. So That's yeah, crazy. there's going to be some new Jerry Duggan work, a new, a new IP in the first one. Um, and uh, a new a new dead dead eyes story as well, nice. uh, but the the main crux of it is going to be reprint stuff. The first issue, the first volume, will have the atheist. If you remember that, it was written wow. by Phil Hester, Indeed. published by Image way 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 back, pre Image being as they are not. So there's some some pretty good stuff in there. Um, what's what's been the biggest surprise or what's been the, the one way you've just gone, ah, I didn't even, don't even remember having that one or something uh, that's- Yes, <laughs> there's, there's, there's been a few of those. Um, I thought there was going to be one dinosaur story going into it, but as it transpires, I've done three dinosaur stories that I actually own, mainly all with Steve White, as far as I recall. Uh, Steve wrote most of them. Um, and they were published in Epic, the Epic books. Um, Never another one. Yeah, they were they were a hard sort of um, perfect bound volumes. Dinosaur. The one was called Dinosaur. No, Carnosaur Carnage was the one that my story was originally in. And then there were various other bits and bobs. So yeah, yeah. The, the discovering a couple of more dinosaur stories lying around was quite interest, interesting. Um, and I'd forgotten I had done a story for Strip Magazine as well, if you remember that old Marvel UK yeah. um, sort of adventure into creator-owned work as well. So I did, I did a four-pager for that with Cy Spencer. So that, that's been dusted off as well and slung, slung into the books. So, yeah, it's a, it's, a, it's a sort of an interesting hodgepodge, and it's kind of, it's kind of interesting to see what holds up and what doesn't. Both in writing and in, in and in art, and um, but for the most part, it's it's it seems pretty solid. Uh, I'm quite happy with how it's all coming together, and hopefully the new stuff will really bind yeah, bind it all together. But yeah, the times are interesting in this COVID uh, world that we're in. And I think the, the the general concept or the conversations we have is uh, when it comes to talking to comics creators it's a case of um well usually we are stuck at the uh, the writing or drawing table we are mm. um not really talking to many people we are not going out that often we're sleeping unusual hours so there's no re real massive change uh, so it's just a very uh, yeah. but it's just that more people outside of comics are doing it as well um so yeah, yeah. uh Russ, now, do you have sorry Russ. no that's uh I was just—I wanted to dip back into what you'd uh, you'd said earlier. Uh, do Do you recall what it was that you'd done with uh, with Tom Pyre that's going to be part of this? Uh, oh, yeah, I asked sure. mostly because um, he's about a mile that way. <laughs> oh, is he oh, really? Uh, yes, sir. I love Tom. He's he's great. Um, he's great. And if you take his hair and Leonard's hair, then you have the normal amount of person hair between two. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> that's um, nicely pushed. Nicely put there. Yeah, Tom. Tom's Tom's uh, story is a 
it, he co-wrote it with Jamie Delano, and it was for Vertigo, a thing called Cruel and Unusual. Um, uh, it's we got it back off Vertigo. They felt that they weren't going to do anything with it, so uh, we just negotiated with them and got it back. And honestly, it's been languishing since. The it there was an Italian version of it, um, and uh, when I posited it to Jamie and Tom, they were like, well, you know, <laughs> better it's out there than not. So, uh, yeah, yeah. And I'm going to be printing it in black and white. Um, some of the stories in the book will be in color, uh, some of them in black and white. But I honestly, the sort of time period of Vertigo, the coloring was not my favorite sort of coloring. Uh, it sort of ran to brown a lot. And uh, so I'm just figure we'll just leave the coloring out let the black and white artwork stand or fail on its own merits. Um, yeah, but it's, uh, again, it's Tom's, <laughs> Tom's, it's, it, with Jamie and Tom, I think the, the, the way they work is that Jamie writes all the serious stuff and then Tom comes in and throws the jokes at him, <laughs> you know, and sort of t takes the piss out of Jamie a bit. Uh, that sounds about right. Yeah. Uh, somewhere yeah, around my, here, my, I, pardon? Yeah. One of my favorite oh, just, things on, on Twitter is Tom and John Lehman's yes. sort of uh, sort of uh, hatred of each other. I mean, yes. I think it's that's up. that's a te that's a tennis that's a tennis match and a half. When it, when they get into ball, it's something else is that. Um, when uh, I mean, I've been a fan of yours um, before I even really knew your name, as it were, because as a young reader reading uh, Crisis. Troubled Souls was one of the first stories I really latched onto in my evolution okay. of comics. Because um, Crisis, oh. it was straight off from uh, the Warrior, that kind of period of the evolution of what I was reading. Um, so Troubled Souls was certainly uh, that part of it. Um, but I, my perception of you um, is slightly different in that uh, when I met you in person, it was Ice Birmingham. And you were acting as a mentor to uh, creators that were coming in. And you were mm. kind of imparting your... Um, wisdom and your pointers and tips on uh, these people that were wanting to get some real grounding in uh, the, the industry. And I, I was sure. really impressed by that and it was touched by the, the time and effort that you've spent with the, those people. Um, in terms of your kind of appearances this year, what would have that been look, looking like? What would you have been doing in terms oh. of, because I know you, you were at Thought Bubble, which was the last time we, we saw each other. Sure, sure. Um, I, I did have a number of shows lined up, I guess. Um, uh, the the mentoring thing you were talking about, uh, that's part, that has been part of a, an ongoing sort of, uh, I, I, school is too uh, yeah. solid a name for it. It's a sort of, we, I randomly uh, produce these classes every so often that run for about six months. Um, that that sounds like you. That sounds like you set up a tent and just drag somebody off of the street and just right there. You go. <laughs> it's sort of almost, sort of almost. You know, a little bit of advertising. You know, uh, and then sort of drag people in as much as yes. And it's some of the people that um, are now, I mean, I, from previous classes I've run, we've got people now like uh, Rachel Stott is one of my ex students. Um, uh, Keith Big Burns, fan. yeah, yeah, Rachel's great, fan, and she's doing, fan. yeah, she's doing some terrific stuff these days, and her uh, her coloring work 
has just gone through the roof in the last year or so. I've just been watching her color work progress and move. And then the last few pieces she's done, that, uh, that Batman holding the Joker off the side of the building shot picture she drew, um, the coloring on it was, I mean, the drawing was amazing, but the coloring was also incredible. Um, so yeah, it's really nice. It's, it's it's great watching people sort of grow up, their work grow uh, in front of your eyes like that. And remembering what she was like when she was on the course, which was always extremely determined and always extremely keen to learn. Um, and then I, since the course ended, I've always sort of dipped in and said, oh, you should do this or do that or a bit of advice on the way you do that, draw this. And when she's once and just seeing her sort of um, I mean she's got like 8 billion Twitter followers and I've got 12 so you know that says it all <laughs> these young people they know how to exploit the social media <laughs> but um, but uh, yeah but her and Keith Burns now who's been doing some tremendous work with Garth and also he's working he's he won uh, Aeronaut Aviation Artist of the Year a couple of years back against just, well, everyone, you know, all aviation artists across the world. Um, so Keith is doing very well for himself. And there's been a few other real success stories out of the, the, the comic courses I've run. So um, I'm hoping after COVID, maybe we can get back to it. I'm still not this thing here, this yeah. Zoom business or Steam, what are we, Steam Yard? Steam Yard, yeah. <laughs> Steve, you know, this business is still too tricky for me that, that I would uh, dare to use this as a Do way of teaching. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. I, it's uh, no, not yet. Um, I, I think these old phones, I don't think I'm ready for that. But yeah, I mean, that, 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 so that's taken a knock, yeah. that teaching. Um, and of course, I was, I did have a bunch of conventions lined up to do. Um, and that doesn't look like anything's going to be happening. Yeah. Well, I mean, moving forward, then, I mean, I, I mean, I was, I'm a been, I've been a massive fan of Dead Eyes from uh, Inception okay. and prior to Inception. I think you can, uh, we'll, we'll call it that uh, with the, uh, the, the story, well, you're, 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 the way that you're talking about. But um, mm. in terms, I'm interested about the fact that you say that it's, it's proven difficult to produce the book. Um, in the current landscape, uh, I mean, what? I mean, to not kind of uh, tell tales or point fingers. I mean, what was being the support from Image Comics moving forward with getting Dead Eyes uh, as a continuing story to move forward? Well, Image have had a. I mean, like all publishers, Image have had a hard time. This yeah. has been a nightmare, actually tricky, and I cannot really blame Image for anything that's happened. It's just been, like I said, a bunch of unfortunate events that have really given us a good old swift kick in the balls. Um, yeah. And we, to, to, you know, when I first signed up for Image to draw Mythic, uh, they basically said to me, uh, and I had I'd only ever realized, thought that Image uh, was all back end all back-end pen um, and when I talked to Eric Stevenson he said nope we'll we'll pay you a page rate uh, that is fine um, 
and now they won't is that's basically the upshot of it there is no upfront page rate certainly not for me um there may be people for whom there still is but i understand how the industry works there's all sorts of layers and levels um, and then it would be a fool to think of.